What's up? I'm Tyler. And I'm Dakota. And this is the Bourbon and Business Podcast. Where we interview successful businessmen and women to let you in on why success doesn't have a single formula to follow. We also have a little bourbon tasting along the way, because why not? Why not? Why not? So guys, please enjoy this episode and let us know your thoughts at Bourbon and Business Podcast on Instagram. Coming to you from the Bourbon and Business Studio, I'm Tyler. And I'm Dakota. And this is the Bourbon and Business Podcast. How you doing today, Dakota? Fantastic, Tyler. It's always great to see you. It's always good to see you as well. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, the Capital Club in downtown Jackson, Mississippi. Um, great, great view there. Great atmosphere. And what else am I missing, Dakota? They've got events. They have event hosting. They have connections. They have membership pricing that's very reasonable. They've got it all, Tyler. Yeah, lunch daily. If you are in Jackson or the surrounding area, make sure you check out the Capital Club and check out their membership options. Well, do you want to introduce our guest to us? Absolutely, I do. We have a, a very special guest today, and his name is Shad White, State Auditor for the State of Mississippi. Shad, welcome. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me, and I've uh, been looking forward to this. Happy to have you. Yeah. Well, glad to have you on this morning. And also, you want to give a, give our listeners an idea of what we're drinking today? Yeah. So today we're drinking Koval. I think I'm saying that right. K-O-V-A-L. It is a whiskey, not a bourbon, but it's a single barrel. This was another uh, gift from our sponsors over at Cheers Vineyard in Gluckstadt. According to John Thomas, this stuff is pretty damn good. So we'll uh, we'll give it a taste here and, and see what's going on. Well, if JT said it's good, it's got to be good. It's got to be good, right? So, I always like to turn the bottle around backwards so Dakota can guess what the name of it is. That's right. I saw him struggling, so I twisted a little bit. Just got to help a guy out. Distilled in Chicago. That's the other part you missed down there. I used to to move it away from Tyler so he couldn't see it, and now he does the same thing. (laughs) We found that it's not best to let me read things out on the podcast. That's correct. That's what I introduced. I can handle Shad White, though. That's it's a hard one. That's good. That's a hard one. It's a really good whiskey. It's a rye. Which is typically not one of my favorites, but I'll have to say I want to give this one a 8.7. 8. 8.7. 8. So strong rating. Very smooth. So It's also highly specific of you, Tyler. Yeah. 8.7. <laughs> I need to see, like, the spectrum of what is good and what – are we going out of 10 here? Is it on 100? Spoken like a true auditor. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, we do it the off-the-cuff opinion for me. So, off-the-cuff. You know, okay. There's not many guidelines that go to that 8.7. reactions. What I'm feeling at the moment. To the decimal point. Got it. <laughs> What do you think, Dakota? I, I, I do think it's good. I'll get my rating a little later in the show, and then we'll get yours at the end. Most important Should I drink it now, or should I? Well, let's do it at the beginning of the podcast. I'll save my rating for the end. But okay. There you go. There you go. Well, Shad, uh, we appreciate you coming on today. Um, congratulations Thank on the, the recent yeah. election. And we always like to start this out, you know, let our listeners know who you are, where you grew up, you know, and then how you kind of major path to the uh, auditor's office. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a little bitty town uh, in South Mississippi called Sandersville, which is a town of about 700 people. Uh, my dad is an oil field pumper. His dad was an oil field pumper. Mom was a school teacher and went to Northeast Jones High School. Um, and, you know, really good, stable upbringing, just mainly spent most of my time playing soccer uh, and uh, went off to Ole Miss 
and uh, loved Ole Miss, loved being there, uh, started thinking more about my future and what I wanted to do, and really kind of fell in love with economics and public policy and didn't know where that where that interest would take me, but those were those were two of my big interests at Ole Miss. Um, started getting involved a little bit in politics too, volunteering on some political campaigns and that sort of thing. Um, and then I was very fortunate, so I applied for something called the Rhodes Scholarship, which is a scholarship that pays for study in Oxford, England. And I was uh, very lucky. I was selected for that. So I went off to Oxford for a little over a year and stayed there, did a master's degree in economic history, and really started thinking about what I wanted to do, what my priorities were. And I loved education policy, but I also had had come to believe that, you know, you can love policy all you want and you can have the best ideas in the world, but if you don't have, if you don't hold a position that you can leverage to get good policy done, then your ideas are just a white paper sitting on a shelf somewhere. Mm. And so that's that really triggered my interest more deeply in politics. I came back to Mississippi. I worked on a congressional campaign um, and then uh, worked on uh, Governor Bryant's campaign in 2015 or 2011 back then. Um, did that for a bit, really cemented my interest in politics, but decided, you know, I, I don't want to just – uh, be locked into a career in politics. I'd rather have a skill set um, in case it doesn't work out. So went off to law school, went to law school at, at Harvard Law School. Again, I was very fortunate to get in. I was the the dumb kid that everybody tried to figure out how he got in here with that accent. Um, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best thing that happened there was I met my wife. So my wife is from Louisiana. Uh, so we were the, you know, we were the only two Southern conservatives at Harvard Law School. So we we're like, well, I guess we should get married. Uh, question mark. Um, I was sold from the very beginning. It took me a little bit of persuading to get her down with that idea. But um, met my wife there, moved back to Mississippi, uh, worked on another campaign, and then practiced law for a little bit. Practiced law at a firm, and then um, practiced law at a at a nonprofit. And then in 2018, uh, this job, the state auditor's position, came open. My predecessor left to go take a, a different position in state government. So when the state auditor steps down, the governor gets the right to appoint somebody to fill out the remainder of the term. Um, I called Governor Bryant, and I said, look, I know this is a little weird coming from a 32-year-old, but um, I'm interested in that job, and here are five or so things that I would do differently uh, or improve if I were in that office. I wouldn't be calling you about really any other office in state government, but I think this one particular job is incredibly important. And so he said, uh, that's nice. And that we ended the phone call, and I thought, well, that was that. Um, but then about a week later, he called back and said, look, let's sit down to talk about this in, in greater detail because um, I think I think it's a real option. So fast forward a few weeks, he appointed me state auditor, and since then, since 2018, it's been, it's been a whirlwind. It's been a lot of fun. It's hard to believe I've been in this job five years, uh, but – Got elected to a full term in 2019, got reelected, uh, yeah, I guess last week. Uh, so for another full, for another full four years. Uh, so I'm excited. We got a lot of stuff, uh, queued up that I think is going to be really interesting. You said that when you reached out to Governor Bryan at the time to say, Hey, you know, these are some things that, some ideas that I have for the auditor's office. What kind of piqued your interest when that? vacancy came and you were like that's that's where i could make a change and that's a gutsy move too by the way yeah i had nothing to lose yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to lose i uh, i had been thinking about the auditor's office for a long time so when i was an undergrad at old miss i wrote my senior thesis on education finance in mississippi and ways we could improve the mechanisms that we use to fund public schools 
And to do that thesis, I interviewed a bunch of different auditors at the state auditor's office. So I got to come to Jackson. I got time with them. I sat down. I, I looked at some of their audits. We did these interviews. And I learned a ton from them. But that's the first time I became interested in the auditor's office and, and what it could do. Because I saw that not only could you really take on corruption with the criminal investigative side that the auditor's office has, but you also have access to a ton of data about how we spend taxpayer money in Mississippi. And if you ask tough questions and you're smart about it, you can make serious recommendations about how we can spend money a bit better. So I, I was interested in it from college. And then throughout, you know, even law school, some of the auditors would ping me and say, hey, we're about to write this report. Would you read it and edit it and tell us what you think about it? So I was helping them kind of work through some of the more complicated reports that they were doing and, and dumb it down for people like me, laymen, who, who needed to explain to them. And so I had always been interested in it. I always saw the, the influence that that office could have. And for me, it was a no-brainer. When I heard about the vacancy, I thought, I have nothing to lose. Um, I have a very clear idea of what this office could be. Um, and so gave him a call, and, and off we went after that. So what is it like now being a dad and having this position and looking at your kids as they age to be able to almost have a little bit of influence there. I mean, yeah. you, you definitely have influence there of how, like you said, we fund the schools and yep. education and things like that. It, I would imagine it just makes it that much more impactful. It does. My kids are uh, ages four, two, and eight months, girl, girl, boy, and it adds a sense of urgency every day. It really does because, one, um, when I'm at work, I want to maximize my time at work. Um, because if, uh, if I'm not at work, I want to be with them and I have two sort of jobs. I'm, I'm state auditor, but I'm also in the national guard. So that takes me away for a good bit of time too. So one, it, it means that I want to, I want to work hard when I'm in the office, when I'm in the state auditor's office. And two, I, I see, when I look at them, I see the future and I think I have an ethical and moral responsibility to make this place better. I have a moral responsibility to help Mississippi achieve its potential because when I'm dead and gone, I'm leaving it to them. And for our generation, we're just now coming into that moment where I think, you know, we should be grabbing onto that mission and saying, all right, if this place is going to get better, if we're going to achieve our potential, we can't just assume that our parents' generation is going to do it anymore. They're at retirement age. They're moving on. It's our time now to figure out what the next steps are to move the state forward. Um, and the impetus for me is that feeling that I have an ethical responsibility to my kids to give them something that give them hand them something better than what I got. Now you mentioned you're in the National Guard. How long how long have you served in the National Guard? Oh man, I put in an application whew, back in 2016, mm -hmm. and I think I took the oath in 2020. So three and a half, almost four years now. And tell us what a little bit about what brought that on. Sure. I'd always wanted to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, both my grandfathers served. My grandfathers are my heroes. They both served in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom's dad served in World War II, um, earned a Purple Heart in World War II, was injured. I still have it at my house. Wow. Um, it's on the Twitter if you want to, if you follow me on Twitter. It's, uh, I have a picture there. Um, so I, I'd always been inspired by them. I always wanted to serve. Never really found the right opportunity to, to join. And then after I earned my law degree, I thought this is a good way to use my law degree as a JAG in the military, mm -hmm. put in an application, um, and then uh, join the Mississippi National Guard. I'm stationed over in Meridian. So for those who are not familiar with the National Guard or the reserves, 
what you do is you join the military and you go through the same training that anyone else in the military goes through. So, you know, you go through officer training school, which uh, for me was in Alabama. And it's that kind of stuff you see on the movies, like wake up at 4 a.m. and make your bed real fast and get yelled at. Uh, and, and then you, you go do Army or Air Force JAG school. So for me, it was Air Force JAG school, lawyer school. Um, and that takes a few months. And then after that, you come back, and instead of it being your full-time job, as if you are full-time Air Force in this case, for guards and reservists, you go one week in a month, two weeks a year, to a duty location. So for me, that's Meridian, one week in a month in Meridian and two weeks a year. And uh, on top of that, there's some additional training that you have to pick up. And, of course, at any point, you can get deployed. So just like uh, regular Army or Air Force, they can pick up the phone and call you and say, guess what, you're going to Kuwait for six months. Right. Um, and so that's that's kind of the, the way the Guard and the Reserves works. And for me, it's a great way to balance my civilian career and the stuff that I wanted to do in my civilian life, but also be able to tell my kids, you know, I, I served our country because my grandfather served our right. country, and that's an important value in our family. Right. Well, thank you for your service. Oh, yes, so. thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. So elaborate a little bit more about your current role as state auditor, right? And I'm sure a lot of people are kind of wondering, like, how do you even look for fraud? Yep. Like, how do you catch it? What are early signs of fraud in your business, your organization? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so so we do we do two things related to fraud. The first is we do routine audits. So we're always out there auditing state agencies, school districts, county governments, doing these routine audits that, that aren't triggered by anything other than you're a county and it's your turn, you know, and so we go in and we, we do the audit. Um, if we stumble upon something that looks like financial fraud, then those auditors will turn it over to our criminal investigators. Truth be told, and this is true around the nation, most criminal investigations do not start with an audit. They start with a whistleblower tip. So typically what happens is we'll get a whistleblower tip from somebody who says, hey, uh, Tyler is making a $50,000 a year salary in this little town, but he just bought a Ferrari, and there's no explanation for that. Uh, and also he stays late at night at the office, and he won't let anybody look at the town's books. Bad sign, Tyler. Uh, so, so we would get a tip like that. You gotta be smarter, Tyler. That's yeah, right. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm telling, I always hesitate when I tell this part too, because I'm like, I'm describing for people how to get this done, how to, how to defraud the taxpayers. Um, but we take tips like that and we have criminal investigators, you know, CPAs, lawyers, um, men and women who have been doing this entire career, their entire career, white collar crime investigations. And they dive in and they look at it and we're basically the fact finders. So, you know, we're like your local sheriff if there's been a burglary or a murder. Um, we're going to dig up the evidence. We're going to organize it. And then at the end of that, we're going to take it over to a prosecutor and the prosecutor is going to look at it. Prosecutor is going to make a decision about whether or not they want to indict that individual. And if there's a trial, we'll testify at the trial. But that's that's our process. And what we're looking for are a series of red flags. I mentioned a few of them just now. You're, you, you got somebody living outside their means. You got somebody who is, uh, is very protective of financial information in an office. Somebody who has a ton of power in the office, um, meaning they control a bunch of the financial processes and nobody else has any control over them. Somebody who's afraid to leave their desk. These are the things that we would look for as early red flags for fraud. And then we, we would dive in, uh, look at the financial statements, do interviews. Use, uh, get subpoenas, look at text messages, emails, all that sort of stuff. The stuff you do in a criminal investigation to see if there's something going on. Wow. And 
in Mississippi, I I don't know if it's just we didn't pay attention as much or we didn't hear much about the state auditor's office and fraud cases and stuff like that really until you came into office. Have uh, have you all seen a change in the mindset of people working in in public office now saying, hey, we're, we know that somebody's going to come behind and check yep. Yep. what we're doing? I think so, and I think that's why communicating about the office and what mm-hmm. we do is important. As, as much as I like you guys, the real reason I come and do a podcast or a speech or whatever it is is to send the message through any medium available about what we do and that we're watching. Because you're hoping that somebody who is thinking about stealing will hear this and they'll say, wait a minute, maybe I should not do that. Uh, or I should stop if I'm doing it mm-hmm. right now. And or maybe a whistleblower too, right? 100%. Who's on the fence of like, absolutely. who do I even talk to about this? I say, absolutely. Great, great point, Dakota. So I, I gave a speech, specific example. I gave a speech on the coast. Um, I finished up the speech. A woman came up to me afterwards and said, I've known something for a while. I had no idea where to take it. Now that I've heard your speech, I know exactly where to take it. She put it in my hand, put a, put an envelope in my hand, uh, that she fetched from her car. And that envelope led to an investigation that then led to the conviction of Mayor Mario King, who was the mayor of Moss Point, who, who served a, a federal felony term because of that speech and that woman who put that information in my hand. So that's why I go out and I talk about all this stuff. That's why you see me on Twitter talking about our cases and, and on Facebook. Um, and really, the, the purpose is to send the message to everybody that we're watching. And I think it's, it's part of my job. It's just part of my job. I told somebody the other day, if you were CEO of a business, part of your job is to communicate to your equity holders and your shareholders what you're doing to drive the business forward. Well, the taxpayers are my shareholders. So I've got to tell them what's going on and try to use that mechanism to, to create a deterrent, too, over time. I think that's a great way to operate, too. That transparency piece is huge yep. there, especially in the in a public office like that. Well, what I found is that a lot of people in these public offices, they'll take one of two approaches to social media and just communication in general. They'll either try to hide because they think, well, if I hide, then no one will ask me tough questions, no one will call me mean names on social media. It's just easier. And it is easier to do it that way, but it's the wrong way to do it because you're not achieving the goals of your office if you're not communicating back with the taxpayers. So I think you have to be out there on social media. You have to be pushing a message. You have to be talking about what you're doing. And the result is that, you know, I'm going to get some criticism on Twitter every now and then, or somebody's going to come up to me in Kroger in the milk aisle when I'm buying milk with my two-year-old and tell me what they think about whatever. And that's fine. That's, that's part of being in public life. To me, if you're not willing to accept that, then you don't need to run for office. That's just a part of it. Um, the benefit of being in public office is if you're willing to accept that, you can get a lot done. If you work really hard, so that that's the trade-off I'm willing to make. And do y'all have a number since you've been in an office? How much, I guess, taxpayer money that y'all have been able to recoup, and I guess how much has been lost to fraud? Yeah, the loss too is very difficult because mm-hmm. you you don't really have a good sense. Nobody has a sense of what's going mm-hmm. on out there that you haven't recovered. So this this is really a challenge all over the country. Is uh, the FBI, universities, they've all struggled to try to figure out what, how can we estimate the amount of fraud? It's a, it's a very tough question. But on the amount recovered, we've recovered just north of $70 million in wow. five years. So that's, that's more than any other five year period in the history of the office. I say it that way because I'm bragging on the men and women in the auditor's office. As you can probably tell, my job is to not sit in front of an Excel spreadsheet and piece the numbers together and be like, aha, I got them. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's not what I do every day. There are investigators and auditors who are doing that every single day. My job is to, um, 
make hiring and firing decisions to build the team to do this, go to the legislature and get our budget, or ask the legislature to change laws to make it easier to do our jobs, and three, to communicate back to you what we're doing, much in the same way a CEO would communicating back to shareholders. So for me, uh, I'm very proud of the work that they did. I, I put that team in place. I give them the resources. I get out of their way, and they've responded incredibly well to that. I think the other reason they've responded well and we've gotten such great results is they know, and I've said it a thousand times, and, and eventually people start to believe it, I don't care who they investigate. I don't care where it leads. Their job is to investigate any lead available. doesn't matter how important somebody is. It doesn't matter if they're a Hall of Fame quarterback. I am not here to stop you. Your job is to do your job, and and then we just see where the chips fall after that. Well, I think it's a good time for a bourbon break. Yeah, I love the bourbon break. So, Cobalt, delicious. I thought it was really good. I thought it was smooth, too. Um, it's got like a... Maybe it's vanilla or caramel or something that I'm hitting in there. Yeah, I'm it's not sure. It's, it's, it's got a, it's got a taste of something. Yeah, I'm not it, sure. It's a little bit sweet yeah. in there, but it doesn't have that like real bad burn aftertaste, <clears> and that's probably part of the rye in there too. Uh, I'm gonna land it a 9.0. 9.8. What did I give it? Eight? Well, I actually write it down this time. Look so. at you. 8.7. So you trying to impress the auditor? We get to the end, and I, and I give my number combined, you'd be like, he'd never work for the auditor's office. <laughs> so, Tyler gives us a rough average, average of, of all three. The average so, is 11. Of all, oh. of all right, so back to the podcast here. Um, how do you establish some safeguards in your organization? What, yeah. what are some ways that people can enhance their policies and procedures? This is really true whether we're talking about a small government office or a big government office or a small business or a big business. Um, internal controls are very important. Those are preventative mechanisms to keep fraud from happening in the first place. So um, without me rambling a ton on all of them, I would say this. Go to the auditor's office website. If you go to osa.ms.gov and you click on resources, you can scroll down, and we have various documents on there that can tell you, okay, here's how you can segregate duties in your office, meaning break up the power that somebody has over the financial mechanisms of your office so that no one person has too much opportunity to, to steal. Uh, we've even got it down to the level where if you have a two-person office, you can find the optimal way of segregating your duties so that there's a, the minimal chance of fraud possible. Um, that, that was important to me because I grew up in a town of 700 people, and I always my first year, I was always talking about, you know, make sure that you're segregating duties and have internal controls. And my dad, who is an oil field pumper, but also is mayor of our little town, came up to me after one of my talks that he heard, and he was like, how the heck do you want me to do that? It's me and one other person in the city office. You know, how am I supposed <laughs> to segregate duties between two people? And so we went on a mission to figure this out, and there's an optimal way to do that, too. So so I would just say, in general, look on the auditor's office website. We've got some good resources there. But you really, if I had to name one thing, if I had to name one thing for everybody to do if you wanted to prevent fraud, the most common and maybe the most effective way to prevent fraud is to let your employees know that there is a there is an anonymous system for them to report fraud in the office where if they report fraud, no one will ever know that they're the ones who gave that information. So in a big organization, that might be like a 1-800 number where you post that 1-800 number and somebody says, you know what, I can call that. Nobody's ever going to know it's me, but I can tell them I saw Dakota walk out with $1,000 in cash from the drawer, and I know he's not paying that back. Mm. Um, or if you're a small organization, maybe it's 
Here's my personal email, everybody. I just want to remind you, you can always come tell me about something that's going wrong here. It'll never leave between me and you, um, and I'll take action based on that. That's the number one thing you can do in any sized organization. It is make sure your employees know there's a way to report theft if they see it, and it can be anonymous. And fraud, you know, we see it happen every day, whether it be public office, small businesses, and see a lot of small businesses ruined by, you know, an employee that oh, it's steals an over existential threat for a small business. a ten year period. Yep. So yep, because you have to trust a small number of employees in a small business right. just by their very nature, by its very nature. And so, yeah, you have somebody that you trust, and they start stealing, and it lasts long enough. Um, it's not just it's not just a problem; it's an existential problem. You can go right. bankrupt if you don't catch it. Yeah, it's 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 a tough situation though, right? Because we have there's few people who want to be that good Samaritan is what I'm going to call yep. it and, and report the fraud, right? It's not cool to do, you know, you're, you're kind of like viewed differently or you feel like people view you differently. So I wonder if there's a way to, to make it cool, to be honest, you know what I mean? Um, it, it seems like the cool kids in school growing up are always the ones who are kind of dishonest. Um, it's never the ones who are, you know, the walking. The monitor is the least popular. Exactly. Person. Exactly. Yeah. How do we make that the cool position again? It's very tough. What you're talking about is a cultural issue. Yeah. Um, there, there have been some books about this, and I think one is called The Whistleblower, which I haven't read yet, but there's some books talking about how we should valorize whistleblowers because they're doing something that is very courageous. It's very, very difficult. You can get fired, you know. Um, sometimes we have whistleblowers who will come forward and, uh, somehow, you know, the boss will find out. Something actually illegal happened in that office, but the whistleblower still gets fired, you know. So then they have to go hire a lawyer and use the whistleblower statute to get their job back and all that stuff. It's just hard. It's and then it, when they do come back, they're like a hated person in that organization yeah. maybe, yeah, absolutely. frowned upon. It's much easier to just not do anything, yeah. right? But we have to ask ourselves in our lives, you know, are you willing to sit there and not do anything when something is going wrong? Are you going to do the right thing even when nobody's looking? That's the tricky part. That's that's what integrity is. And so um, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to make this cool. But I will say this. I think that over the last 10, 15 years, if you look at public polling, people's faith in institutions has gone down. So the, um, the American public's faith in journalism and government and just about everything except the military has gone down. And so if we're going to restore that faith, you have to have people on the inside of these institutions raising their hand and saying, something dishonest just happened here. That's the only way I think you restore people's faith in those institutions is to make it cool. Right. Well, and I think, you know, growing up in Mississippi and the private the South in general, we're, we're taught at a young age, you know, hey, you mind your own business. Like you don't, 100%. you don't get yep. involved in, or don't put yourself into a situation that you don't need to be in. Yep. Especially um, as an, a, a younger person in correct. an organization. Yep. But, but really and truly fraud affects all of us, you know, especially as taxpayers, you know, that's, that's affecting every one of us in this room. Or if you're working for a business, if someone's stealing from that business, that's, yep. that's affecting you. Yep. Um, and I think that, you know, having the mindset that, hey, it's, uh, you know, Stealing, being dishonest as a whole affects everybody. That's and, right. And, and, and especially from an adult perspective, it needs to be addressed. That's right. So. There's this great writer. He's a, he's a professor at Harvard Business School, and he writes about that. He has this book called Why They Do It. And when you talk to a lot of fraudsters, especially after they finish their prison sentences, so there's no consequences for them, they can tell you what they honestly think, a lot of them will tell interviewers, oh, I just I don't believe there are any victims to what I was doing. 
you know, I was stealing money, but I was stealing money out of this big pool of funds. It's the government's, you know, so what does that even matter? I was stealing from a business. What does it even matter? I was defrauding shareholders at Enron, but what does that even matter? I mean, it's too dispersed a group to even think of that group as a victim. But the truth is that there are victims, and if you start to think about what you could have done with that money, it becomes very clear. Very quick example. We found that over COVID, over the course of the COVID pandemic, about half a billion dollars, with a B, half a billion dollars was lost to unemployment compensation fraud in the state of Mississippi. I mean, $500 million went to folks who were not eligible for unemployment. They didn't live here. They maybe didn't live in the country. Um, and so that's a lot of money. And I'm sure those folks thought, well, I can take this money. I, you know, I live in my mom's basement in North Carolina. Who cares if... You know, a Mississippian gets hurt by this or the Mississippi government gets hurt by this. But $500 million could have paid for one of the biggest teacher pay increases in the history of the state. You know, it could have fixed a whole bunch of roads. Um, so that's what you have to keep in mind. Could I think have fed we, a whole lot more families. Uh, could have fed a lot more families. It, it just, when you keep in mind what you could have done with the money, that helps keep the victim in uh, front of mind, too. Well, what is, if you can share with us, what is one of the craziest fraud cases that you've worked on since you've been in the auditor's office? I mean, the most famous, obviously, and the one that's gotten the most attention is the big welfare scandal. Mm -hmm. That's the the TANF scandal that we put a stop to in early 2020. And, of course, it's become very well known because of the people involved and and high-profile athletes and some celebrities and all that sort of stuff. It's it's the wildest in the sense that it was the most complicated and also the biggest. Um, Some of the small ones, though, are really crazy to me too i mean almost like can't make this stuff up kind of crazy absolutely absolutely. i mean we've had multiple cases this is just wild we've had multiple cases where an office will install security cameras above people's heads and we will see somebody take cash in front of the camera and stuff it down their shirt and just walk out and i'm like did you just not look up did maybe they thought nobody was looking maybe right. nobody's going to watch this speed those are the kinds of cases where the investigators come back to me and they tell me about it and i'm just baffled yeah. like, all right please put them in jail you know find a <laughs> prosecutor who will put that person in jail because that that's both dumb and completely criminal um so we we run the gamut all the way from the super complex big dollar ones involving people that are well known all the way down to how could you be dumb enough to do that yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, let's face it, if you are stealing or misusing funds, it's, it's dumb. Cause yes. it, it can be figured out fairly easy if you can do math. Now, Most of these. If you don't have me checking, obviously. Yes. yes. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Tyler has greenlit this one. Um, yeah. It's, uh, most of these schemes are easy to figure out if you have somebody in that office who will raise their hand and say, Hey, look at that over there. That's the key ingredient there. If nobody does that, it's very difficult to figure out. Um, it's never a foolproof plan, no, right? There's no. always somebody else who knows. There's always or who something. saw something or who noticed a red flag. Like That's right. That's exactly right. Um, I've never seen a fraud scheme okay. that I thought no one could have ever figured yeah. that out, even the complex ones. Well, there's definitely an expiration date on it. At some point, it's going to come out. Well, the That's more right. complex yeah. it gets, too, the more people that are involved, right? And That's then the more chances right. you have of, of getting found out that's right that's why conspiracies are both uh very lucrative for the people who are in them you know if you have multiple people in a complex scheme they can kind of watch each other's back and they can they can steal a lot of money real fast but the more people you have and the more the the broader the scheme the more likely somebody is to say what are those folks doing over there why did that thing happen and then they start asking questions and maybe they report it at that point well great 
Well, Shab, we're to the part of the podcast oh, where we get your rating on the bourbon or okay. whiskey, excuse me. <laughs> I have a lot of mixed thoughts here. Um, number one, it's from Chicago. So, you know, uh, it's a Yankee bourbon. It's a Yankee whiskey. It's not even a bourbon. So I'm already predisposed to be skeptical of that. <laughs> I'll just lead off with that. Um, but after I tasted it, it's excellent. It's very, very good. There's no bite at the end, which is kind of nice. Sometimes you want that. And I'm not like a notes guy. I can't figure out if people like drink wine and they say, oh, there's a dark cherry note. Yeah. It tastes like red wine to me. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think there's like some vanilla or something. Yeah. It's got, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. There's something in there that I'm not smart enough to be able to describe, but it's, it's nice. Very smooth, a little bit sweet. It's a good purchase. Thirty dollars? Yeah, thirty, thirty thousand. It's in my dad there. budget right there. There you go. <laughs> we can we can do that in my house. Thirty dollars not too bad. Okay, so the number. I have to give an arbitrary number. Um I'm gonna go uh, I'm gonna make this easy on you. You're gonna really appreciate this. I'm gonna go nine point three. Nine point three. You wanna so, do the math for us right there, Shane? No, so no time. He wants easy. you to do it. Yeah, I made it easy for you. That's why I did this. We'll, we'll go nine point zero on the <laughs> Very good. Beautiful. I may have a future at the auditor's. That's office. right. Exactly right. You passed test number one. So well, Chad is your teacher, you will go far. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on today. Yeah. Um you know, obviously at the end we always say, Hey, you know, if someone most of our uh, guests that come on have businesses, and so obviously you're not selling anything at the auditor's office. So if someone has selling a selling honesty, yes, right. if somebody has, <laughs> has a tip that they want to call in, uh, what is the best way for them to get in Great touch? Great question. That is the that is the final question. Um, 1-800-321-1275 is the hotline. So you can call that number. You can do so anonymously. You can you can tell us about any kind of fraud that you suspect with government funds. If it involves private funds, we can't help you. You might want to call the FBI. But if it involves public funds, give us a call. Um, if uh, if you want to do it online, we also, at the website, we have a report fraud button. So you can go to osa.ms.gov, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a big red button that says report fraud, so you can click on that. And if there's any way that, uh, that that it's in our jurisdiction and that it even might be fraud, we'll get in touch with you, we'll assign an investigator, and, and they'll get back to you. Fantastic. We appreciate you having you on today. And yeah. to all our listeners, if you would, go follow us on social media and write, give us a rating on however you stream this podcast. And we'll see you next week. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback or would like to be featured, reach out to us at bourbonandbusinesspodcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Instagram at bourbonandbusinesspodcast. Thanks again for listening. Follow us for more content and info on the next episode.